The hymn we just sang, it uh, spoke of old men praising him. Glad to be in that category. <laughs> uh, it could be that uh, the Apostle John was older when he penned the uh, letter that we've been looking at, the little letter of First John. So First John, in that group of uh, three little letters toward the end of uh, the New Testament. So we've been looking at this uh, letter for, him for some time now, and we come today uh, in the text to verses 11 through 21 of chapter 4 of First John. I am picking up uh, verse 11, even though technically it was in the text last uh, Sunday, you'll, you'll see why that is, as you notice that, that uh, verse 11 uh, is sort of both the conclusion to what came before that and also the beginning of what comes after it. And, and you also notice, if you look down at verse 21, uh, that ends the passage we're looking at today, it sort of reflects the same kind of content as verse 11 has. So, so they're sort of like bookends uh, marking out this passage. So verses 11 through 21 of chapter 4, the Lord's word to us this day. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in him, and he in us, because he has given us of his Spirit, and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. We might risk summarizing this passage, so it covers a lot of material, we might might want to summarize it as focusing our attention on the truth that the love of God is the inspiration, the source, and the substance 
of his church's love for one another. Uh, God's love is right at the center of this passage. And of course, this is not the first time John's addressed this theme in the letter, is it? If you glance back at uh, 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, we read, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. You see there that the fact that Jesus has laid down his life for us is to be the inspiration, the motive for our laying down our lives for another. Now here in chapter 4, John pointed us to the love of the Father as a motivation. 1 John 4 verse 10, And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So the, the, the act of Jesus laying down his life for us is the motivation for loving one another. And in verse 11, we're told that the act of the Father sending the Son to bear the wrath of God against our sins, that's a motivation for us loving one another as well. Now, John doesn't mention the Holy Spirit, but it's certainly true that, that we can add to the love of the Father and the love of the Son, the love of the Spirit, because Scripture tells us that that the Spirit is the active agent who communicates the love of God to us and who, who pours out God's love into our hearts. Uh, look, for instance, at Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, just a couple of sentences from that text. Since we have been justified by faith, we've been declared righteous by faith in Christ, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, the, the one with whom we were at enmity, God himself. We now have peace with him. And how is that communicated to us? Well, Paul says in verse 5, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now, you see the significance of that? When, when John gives us these examples, and we see these examples elsewhere in Scripture, of God's love as a model for us, as an inspiration for us, you're not to think, okay, this means that, that I have to sort of generate this love myself. Okay, that, that, that somehow I, I'm on my own strength to come up with the kind of love that God has. No, if, if we remember that verse in Romans 5, we're being told that God's love is given to us. So when we're commanded to love one another, it's with the love that God has given us. You see, he, he gives the command, but he also supplies the love that we need to do that. He's poured his love into our hearts. He's lavished upon us his love. And it's that love, I think, then, that we're to direct towards others. So, so we could say, then, that, that, that this love that we're talking about here in 1 John is a Trinitarian love. Okay, we see it in the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. They enjoy that perfect love in the Trinity, and now it's, it's as if that love is overflowing into the lives of their people. Remember the example that John gave us in 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. 
This is a very practical love. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Think of the uh, practical and personal example that Jesus himself gave to his disciples just before his crucifixion. L listen to excerpts from this account in John chapter 13. When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around them. Can you imagine the hush that fell out of, over the room as those 12 men watched what the Lord was doing and experienced it themselves? And, and here's how he interprets that to them. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right. For so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. And this is the context then in which he says to them a little bit later, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And he's telling them with this example that that love is to be personal and it's to be practical. It's to be, it's to be real life, consistent love. Now, John knows, as he writes in our text, he, he knows that that this doesn't come naturally to us. Uh, so, so look at what he says in verse 12 that reminds us that this ability to love one another uh, comes from God himself. He, he introduces this by, by reminding us of a basic theological truth. Okay? God is not a physical being. Okay? He says at the end of our text, too, that God has not been seen by anyone. He can't be seen in a physical sense because he's a spirit. He's not constrained by space or time. And not only that, God is holy, holy, holy. And human beings are sinners. So in this earthly life, even believers cannot see God in a physical sense. We saw that demonstrated back in Exodus 33. You remember where, where, where Moses is, is receiving the law from God and, and in this very intimate relationship with God, and he, and he asked God to show him his glory. Show me your glory. And God replied, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. You cannot see 
the fullness of my glory in this earthly life. The Apostle Paul conveys this idea with the image of unbearable light. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 16, he speaks of God who dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see. So John reminds us of that basic theological truth. But then... He reminds us that even though we can't see God in that sense, God has revealed himself in the best possible way through the incarnation. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. You see what he's saying there? We can't see God in his glory, but God has revealed himself in Jesus Christ. Verse 20 of that same chapter. In Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So Jesus is the ultimate revelation of who God is, and he is the ultimate means whereby God is bringing himself into reconciliation, into peace with his creatures, his people. John himself spoke of it in the beginning of his gospel. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God, he says. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So even though we can't see God in a physical sense, Jesus in his life, death, and resurrection has has made it possible for us to know him and to enter into relationship with him. That means that, that God abides in us, watch for that theme in our text, and us in him, and so his love is perfected or completed when we love one another. Okay, when he speaks of perfect love here in this passage, he's not saying that you yourself perfectly love. What he's saying is God's love has begun a work in you and it's completed or perfected. It has as its goal, that's what that, that word means in the Greek, your love for others. It's sort of like God's work in you reaches its goal when that love goes through you to other people. So, for instance, uh, John says it back in chapter 2 of 1 John, whoever keeps his word, and you remember his word is to love, in him truly the love of God is perfected. God, working in believers, loves others. Now, again, let's emphasize that, that we're spiritually born, and so we have the life of God in us who's loving through us. This is not something that you generate on your own. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, Paul speaks of us as loved children. So you're, you're children that have been loved by God, and then as, as children reflect the nature of their parents physically, we're to reflect the nature of Christ spiritually walk in love, he says, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering 
and sacrifice to God. Now in verse 13, John reminds us again of, of how it is that we've received the love of God. How, how did you receive that love from God? And, and how is it that God lives in you? Uh, my translation uses the word abides here. We don't tend to use that word, but think living in or residing in or even making your home someplace. That's the meaning of that word there, abide. So, so you're born again, so God has made a home in you, and you've made a home in him. That's sort of what he's saying here. So back in chapter 3, verse 24, he says, Whoever keeps his commandments abides, lives in God, and God lives in him. By this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. So, so the Spirit has united you by faith with Christ. Now, Jesus talks about this with his disciples again on that last night before his crucifixion. And he uses the image of, of a, a vine and branches. He says to them, I am the true vine. Abide in me, that is, reside in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. By this, he goes on to say, is my father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. See what he's saying there? Your connection with me enables you to bear this fruit. And, and he's already told them that the heart of his command is to love one another. As the father has loved me, so have I loved, have I loved you. Abide, live in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Now that then, in verse 13, sets the stage for verse 14. The apostle writes again in verse 14 of the Father's sending of the Son. Uh, he uses the first person plural pronoun here in a way that sort of echoes the beginning of the letter and even the beginning of of uh, the gospel of John. We won't go back and read those right now, but, but remember that we're hearing from John as an apostle. Okay? He is one of those who gave us the ap apostolic witness to Jesus that then we affirm by faith. So that's what he's speaking of here. So he says in, in verse 15 then, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God God abides in him and he in God. It's by your confession. And here this, this word doesn't mean like to admit something wrong, but it, but it means to acknowledge something is true. It means to say, I know this. I believe this. That's what he's saying there. So he's saying that that, that act of confession, enabled by the Holy Spirit, when he opens your eyes to see who Jesus is and what God has done for you in, in him, that is the moment, that moment of confession is when God unites himself to you and you're in him and he is in you. Now, verse 16, the first part of it, adds to that confession. So we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. 
you see, that's integral to the gospel message that you confess. That you believe that in Jesus, God has loved you and made an atonement for your sin. And so you're confessing your faith in that, in what he has done. Uh, to, again, go back to verses uh, 7 through 10 in just previous to our text. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So that's the content of your confession. You say, I believe this. Or we could go back to John 3, that, that familiar passage, John 3, 16 through 21, that, that same kind of idea. Now, in the last part of, of this verse 16 then, John says in positive terms what he said in negative terms uh, back, I think it was in verse 8. God is love, and only those who live in him and he in them are able to love as he loves. Notice that John is writing us of us being in God and he in us for the fourth time. In this brief passage, four times he, he uses that image of God in us and us in God. He wants us to know for certain that we're united with God himself, that we're in a personal relationship with him, that he is the source of the life and love that we now know as Christians so that we rest and rely on him. And we love and obey him consciously depending upon his life in us. Now, previously, John spoke of God's love being perfected or completed in us as we love one another. Look at how he develops that in verse 17. Okay, in verse 17, he says God's love is perfected in us. It's completed in us so that we have confidence in anticipating the day or the hour of judgment. That confidence, then, you see the progression of thought here, your confidence as you anticipate the judgment of God, is not in yourself, but it's in what Christ has done for you. Uh, to go back to 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, see what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. We don't know exactly what our life will be in eternity. But we do know this, he says, that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. I think that's what he's getting at when he, when he says, as he is, so also are we in the world. We've been given a new identity in him so we can face with confidence the future. Now, the opposite is, is in the next verse, right? What's the opposite of confidence in the day of judgment? Well, it's fear of punishment. And so that's what John goes on to, to deal with in the next, next passage. If we're fearful of judgment, then it must be that we have not really understood God's love. Because if we truly understand God's love for us, we'll realize that, that nothing can separate us from that love, as, as Paul says in, in Romans chapter 8. So we can be confident we're children of God and God's given us his spirit so that we can be confident and, and rest in that. 
listen, for instance, in, to what Paul says in Romans 8, uh, verses 15 through 17. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back in fear. That, that's not the spirit that you received when you became Christians, when you were born again. You've received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. He's using the Hebrew or Aramaic for a father there to, to sort of underscore that personal relationship. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs we inherit. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now, now perhaps the reference to suffering here reminds us that, that we need not fear punishment for our sins before, uh, before God in, in judgment. But we, we do live in a world in which we're going to encounter difficulty. Uh, we may well experience consequences, earthly consequences, for the sins we commit. But, but God's love for us guarantees that we will not face his wrath against our sin. And so our response then, in verse 19, is not fear, but love. We love because he first loved us. He loved us in Christ even before we were conceived. Even before you were alive physically, his love had been placed upon you as his child. And so, and so the natural response to that is love. And this is love, he said back in verse uh, 10. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And then verse 11, beloved of God, so loved us, we ought also to love one another. So our love, the, the demonstration of God's love to others is simply a response to that love that he's shown to us. Now, it is true that the world is full of hypocrites and pretenders, and sometimes those make their way into the church. I think that may be part of what he has in mind in, in verse 20. Uh, the, the primary characteristic of someone who is a hypocrite is that they don't love the people of God. 1 John 2, verses 4 to 6, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And that way, of course, is love. Uh, skip down to John 3:11. This is the message you've heard from the beginning that we should love one another. This is a part of the whole package of the of the gospel. This is how we know we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. And there are other places where John says the same thing, even in this little book. In Psalm 16, we sort of see this reflected in the prayer of the psalmist as as he says, "I say to the Lord, You are my Lord." I have no good apart from you. All, all the good that I know is wrapped up in you, he's saying. As for the saints of the, in the land, that is God's people, his chosen ones, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Do you see, see us been linked together there? His love for God and his love for God's people. Well, what does that look like? You know, John closes this passage that we're looking at with reminding us again, this is the commandment we have of him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. 
what, what, what is the love that he's talking about here looked, look like? Well, I think to know what God's love looks like when it's manifest through you, just think about what God's love looks like when it's ministered to you. Psalm 103, 8, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is merciful to you because he loves you. He extends to you mercy. So his love extended through you to other people is going to be a merciful love. It's gracious. It's slow to anger. It's abounding in steadfast love, covenant love. Uh, very practically, Proverbs 17, 9, whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. Love covers over sins, whereas the opposite of love delights in exposing the sins of others. Proverbs 26, many a man proclaims his own steadfast love, but a faithful man who can find. Certainly, you've experienced the unfaithfulness of human love from time to time. But God's love is faithful. He, he, he never is unfaithful to his people. And so his love shown through you to other people is going to be faithful love. Or Micah 6, 8, where... Where we read, he has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your, with your God. That the love of God loves justice. Doesn't excuse wrong. God did not excuse your sin. But he took the penalty for your sin on Jesus Christ. And so in him, justice and loving kindness came together, and, and that should be reflected in our love as well as we share God's love with others. Galatians 6 uh, tells us that sometimes there's going to be a restoration, a restoring quality to that love. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. God has been gentle in dealing with you, okay? but when you sinned, he did not crush you. He extended to you forgiveness. He was gentle in his relationship with you. And so, so you take that love that God has shown you, and you show that to someone else by gently seeking to restore them after they've sinned. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Christ bore the burden of your sin. And so when you bear someone else's burden, you're sharing with them uh, his love. Well, we, we could go on to... All kinds of other illustrations of that, but I think that, that you're beginning to get the point. Again, the love of God is the inspiration, the source, and the substance of your love for one another. I, I, I hope you've experienced that love. I hope you can look back and think about times when you've experienced God's love through other people. I know I can. I think back to to when I was a, a young man, uh, finished up in college and in a totally different part of the world and seeking to sort of learn who I was and what my ministry is about and so forth. And, and I remember a very plain, ordinary family that, that allowed me to live with them. 
I didn't like living on my own, eating on my own. And they invited me into their home. That's a demonstration of God's love, right? Uh, perhaps you've been in a church where, where you've experienced that hospitality and generosity of support and encouragement. Or, or maybe somebody's, somebody's in a very concrete way. Uh, extended help to you in, a, in the name of Christ. Uh, I remember when uh, my wife and I bought our first house, and it was uh, definitely a fixer-upper, a, a lot of problems in it, and it had this huge, old, uh, very inefficient uh, furnace. And I had a plumber friend in the church, and, and he came over one day and said, uh, I, I've got this used furnace, that I took out of a out of house and it's a lot better than yours. I'll put that in your house for you. Well, that's a token of, of God's love. He, he 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 had a kindness that reflected the kindness of God. He's he's the same guy that once when uh, we were getting ready to go on vacation and uh, the Christian institution I won't mention uh, what it was had had not paid me, and we're about to go on vacation. And, and that was sort of nerve-wracking for a, a young father. And, and, and this friend dropped by to say, and he could tell I was upset and finally got out of me, you know, what, what was going on. We were going to have to put this on credit card because I hadn't been paid. And, and he went home, and, and about five minutes later, his son came over on a bicycle with cash in his hand. Uh, so that we could take that vacation and not have to uh, put it on the credit card. Think concretely with this kind of love. Don't think some flowery speech to something. Think, think very concretely, very, very real. Uh, when I was teaching at uh, Advantage Academy down in Virginia, uh, the board of trustees decided about two weeks before school started that they were going to let me go because their budget was tight. And even though they'd extended me a contract and I'd signed that contract, they were going to break that contract and, and give me severance pay. And, and within about a week, uh, other teachers on the staff had gone to the board and said, you take money out of our salaries so that Bill can have a job like you promised him. I mean, that's love. Okay? That, is, that is a self-sacrificing love that that's the kind of thing that that John's calling us here to hey how do you love like that what well, what well, don't don't be think looking at yourself all the time again don't don't think oh how can I do something great like this okay let me suggest two things to you one is spend a lot of time thinking about how much God has loved you in Christ okay meditate on what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. Think about the depth of love that it took for the Father to send his Son, his only Son, the one whom he loved, to die for you. Think about the love of Jesus for you. Let him to lay down his life for you. Think of the love of the Spirit who, who has communicated that love to you and enabled you to receive God's love. Think on that. And then, and then take that and think about, okay, what would God's love look like extended to this person 
or to that family or to this group. Look at other people and think, how would God love that person? And I'm sure that, that, that God will let you see needs that he has equipped you to reach and in that way share God's love with them. Uh, God has loved us so much. Let's love one another in his name. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the love that you have shown to us in Jesus Christ. And we pray that we, we wouldn't try to keep that love to ourselves. We wouldn't become dead and stagnant like, like the Dead Sea, but that, that, that we allow that love that you have shown to us to flow out into the lives of other people. And we know that's going to go against the grain sometimes. That's, that's not going to be, that's not going to come naturally to us. We're, we don't tend in our, of ourselves to, uh, to be loving people. But we, we believe that your Holy Spirit will, will give us that love. You've shown to us the love of Christ. And so we believe that you will love others through us for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.